The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Stockhead Wildcatter podcast and today we are delighted to have John Campbell with us. John is the author and editor of the Oil and Gas Weekly. Uh, Welcome to the Wildcatter, John. Thank you, Peter. Uh, John, I thought uh, we could uh, use some of your deep and broad uh, knowledge of the oil and gas industry today to run through uh, some of the sort of top-down issues that we're seeing in the market, obviously talking about prices for oil, gas and so forth. But before that, uh, perhaps you'd just like to uh, tell the listener a little bit about your background, which encompasses uh, um, politics and uh, working for the public service and uh, and many areas of uh, of industrial and mining research. Uh, Yes, Peter, thanks. I did have a career in the Foreign Service and it was a posting in the Middle East that whetted my appetite for studying oil. Uh, Obviously, in in foreign affairs, it was oil politics. And once I had left the department, it became oil stocks and and what what they offered uh, people like myself in terms both of uh, doing analysis and writing about it and um, hoping to make some money out of it at the same time. I've been writing the Oil and Gas Weekly since about 2003, fairly continuously, absolutely continuously. And uh, during that time, I was also invited to join a small oil company, Northern Territory Oil, which had uh, assets in, in Texas, which was quite an experience. We tried to come to the market uh, in 2014, which was absolutely the wrong time to do it when oil prices fell. Uh, so we didn't make it to the ASX. And in the end, we didn't make it uh, to a profitable oiler either. Uh, and the company is now virtually disbanded. Uh, but it was a useful experience, I must say. So, John, uh, I remember uh, bouncing around in the back of utilities with you in uh, southern Texas and western Texas, uh, looking at uh, some of these early stage oil, shale and, and gas, uh, shale gas uh, uh, projects back in the sort of 2005-2007 period and we've seen a lot of water go under the bridge and a lot of money being spent in in that area. What's your summation of the actual impact of the shale gale, if you like, or the shale revolution in the United States and how do you think that's going to flow on if it does elsewhere in the world? Well, there's no doubt that the shale revolution has been absolutely dramatic. I remember back at that time, 2005, 2007, building a library of, of books that all foretold peak oil and, uh, and, and a disaster for the industry, um, with very few of them actually picking the fact that technological developments like fracking and drilling and completion technologies would um, upend uh, American production and bring it back to the levels that uh, have not been seen before, make the US the largest producer. The question is, of course, whether they're producing it Profitably, and uh, as we discussed a little bit earlier when we were off record, 
um, an awful lot of money has gone into the ground, but not not so many of the companies have, have become profitable. I, I saw over the weekend that even Chesapeake, one of the pioneers in shale development, um, is now and, and and the current producer is something like four hundred to five hundred thousand barrels a day. Can't produce those barrels of oil equivalent uh, because of prices and because of their debt, uh, and may actually default. That's right. And uh, Chesapeake producing more oil on an oil equivalent basis than is the whole of Australia. And yet, um, most of it are light tide oil and gas, and yet uh, unprofitable going backwards. And of course, That's it, right. it's worthwhile remembering that Audrey McClendon, who was the founder, uh, ended up uh, driving himself at speed into a brick wall to sort of end his uh, end his misery. It looks as though he, the company he founded is heading in the same direction. That's right. Uh, and there is a lesson in, in all of that, that um, uh, concentration on growth through production of barrels is not necessarily the right strategy. Uh, that one really has to look at the, the cost of your operations and, and and turning a profit so that you've got something to give back to your investors. That's right. And I think uh, from our experience over there, we could see that it was somewhat of a merry-go-round where companies would move into a new area, drill a few holes, uh, show that they could produce oil and or gas, uh, get someone to register that they had reserves. Uh, The stock market would applaud that. Uh, The company would raise more money or, or sell that that, uh, that that acreage and move on. So it was a sort of a drill, um, get the attention of the market, flip the assets and move on to the next conquest and without actually ever uh, generating any um, sustainable cash flow from the business. Oh, that's right. So, I mean, we were talking earlier about uh, BHP Petroleum, which uh, moved in with a great flourish into southern Texas. They spent $20 billion of shareholders' funds to buy some of the best acreage um, in the game, both in the Permian Basin and in the Eagleford Shale. Then they proceeded, uh, again, it was quite a big business, producing about 420,000 barrels of oil equivalent a day, more than the whole of Australia in terms of oil. And um, yet every year they were pouring more money into the ground than was actually being delivered in an operating cash flow point of view. So when they sold it, for 10 billion US, they'd actually uh, poured $20 billion of shareholders' funds down those wells for all of those years. Yes, that's right. Um, it just goes to show that even the best in the business can uh, make mistakes. Yes, I think uh, um, BHP's got a, a fine track record of doing just that um, with a number of other <laughs> investments. They've Magma, Copper, and a couple of others. List very long. Um, so um, just... Uh, you know, we've established that the United States is now amongst the largest producers, if not the largest producer, 12.6 million barrels of oil a day, uh, of which about 7 million barrels is actually light tight oil, which is profitless. Um, so given that background and looking at the global uh, oil and gas supply and demand situation, which is currently, I think we're currently consuming something like 997 million barrels of oil a day globally, what would you think is going to be the trajectory for the oil price over the next one or two years? And then perhaps if we look out beyond a decade. Oh, it's a difficult one. Um, 
I'm just looking at a chart of a uh, 10-year oil price uh, movements. And uh, you recall back in 2013-14, it was up over $100. And then in early 2016, it was below $30. Uh, and nobody predicted that movement at the time. Uh, the factors that influence the oil price uh, are many and varied. And many themselves are unpredictable, like uh, drilling and completion technology, um, civil unrest, for example, and terrorist activity. We saw the recent attacks on on Saudi Arabia facilities. Um, even Donald Trump is a is a an element of, in in this whole game. If if Trump loses the election next year, and some of someone like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren become president, then the oil and gas industry is in for a, quite a rude rude shock. Uh, I think among their policies are a ban on fracking, for example which would have a devastating effect on on the industry, although I, I suspect that it would be very difficult to do that as a federal decision. Right? Mostly that's in the hands of states. In the longer term, you, you know, with 50% or more of a barrel of oil being processed for transport fuels, gasoline and diesel, and with the electrification of the transport sector moving ahead, and then add to that the anti-fossil fuel movement, climate change, environmentalists. You'd have to say, I think, that there are significant headwinds for the, for the oil and gas industry in the longer term. Whether the price will be manipulated then as it is now by OPEC taking more barrels off the, off the market um, is, is quite possible. It's not a free market for oil and gas. Supply and demand is is manipulated. Um, so, in short, in the short run, it could move quite significantly between ban, say, forty to sixty or seventy dollars, depending on those sorts of incidents I mentioned. In the longer run, I, I, I see a prices falling. Probably below fifty dollars, but that would be that would still be profitable for producers if they could get the oil out of the ground at a at, at a a cheaper price. Obviously, yeah, I think um, BHP in its uh, report that they put out earlier today has said that they're looking, they're expecting a, a long term price uh, for Brent of seventy four dollars and forty three cents a barrel. So I think I. I'm aware, you know, I can hear what you're saying about the uh, headwinds against um, pr uh, demand for oil, but of course, uh, supply is also an issue. And uh, the uh, OPEC nations themselves, they probably need an oil price of well over $90 a barrel just to break even on a cash flow basis. Because remember, those OPEC nations rely heavily on the uh, royalties and revenues they get from their national oil companies or from royalties from third parties to actually keep their countries afloat. And with the oil price back at 55 or $60 a barrel, certainly not making any money. And we've just discovered that about 7 million barrels of oil that comes out of the United States is not actually washing its face, even at $60 a barrel. So um, if the banks wise up to this and all of a sudden decide that these it doesn't make a lot of sense financially to lend money, or for investors to subscribe money to companies who are involved in the light tight oil business in the United States, we may well see uh, production falling faster than demand is 
destroyed. So, yeah, I guess I'm in the same sort of band as you, thinking that oil price will will trade between about 50 and $70 a barrel. But I think there's been a big under-investment in oil really since the, uh, the oil price crash in 2015. So we've had four or five years of very weak uh, investment in exploration and field development, and the chickens will come home to roost there with lower output down the track. And I think as we get into sort of the 2022, 23, 2023 time, there may well be a shortage of new oil coming on, even from OPEC. Yeah. Yes, it, it, that's true. And, and but the, the thing that is really the, um, the unknown is just how far technological, technological progress can take, um, take the industry. Uh, one thing about the Americans, they are very, very good at, at innovation, even if, even if not terribly good at making, running profitable business, businesses like Uber uh, and a few others yes. more lately. But they are very good at technological innovation. And, and I think a lot of what's happened in the United States with regard to fracking, the drilling and completion techniques are way, way ahead of what, what is available, say, in the Soviet Union, in, in Russia now. Um, and and maybe not so much in Saudi Arabia, but in in other parts of the world, even in in Argentina, where there there are shale plays there that are yet to be developed. Yeah, it's, uh, even so, across the border into Mexico, where you'd think you know oh, exactly the, the, yes all the facilities are there. It's exact same rocks, and yet hasn't really yep. happened. John, yep. can we move on? Uh, having looked at U.S. shale, there's a lot of talk about light tide oil in the Northern Territory. In Western in in Australia, um, how does that our discussion about shale in the United States and elsewhere in the world, as you talked about in Argentina and in parts of uh, Europe, how does that re- reflect on what might and might not happen in the Northern Territory? Uh, it's a good question. You, you, you mentioned Aubrey McClendon. You, you might recall a few years yes. ago he actually came to Australia and did a deal with Armour Energy and Imperial Energy. Imperial oil and gas, rather, to to buy into the, the Northern Territory shale. Um, that was before the before the moratorium on fracking came into into effect. Um, I, I I was surprised the other day to see that two of the wells that have been drilled into the Beetaloo and have regarded as as demonstrating the productivity of the of the basin, they only came in at a thousand mmcf a day, a million cubic feet a day, whereas, you know, West Aragala from the Kingia sandstone or whatever mm. it was, was 63 million yeah. cubic feet yeah. a day. Yeah. So I, I'm not too sure about the productivity of, of the shale in the first place, but if they do manage to get a resource identified, um, what are they going to do yeah. with it? Um, there's no infrastructure in place um, and and putting it together could be costly uh, and there are no obvious markets. You'd have to think about maybe a, an expansion of the Darwin LNG facility or another LNG project there. A pipeline to the northern gas pipeline and into Mount Isa and therefore into the eastern states markets. Yes, you go east, a, yes. Yeah, I was at a conference uh, in the middle of the year uh, and Central Petroleum has said that they're getting $4 to $4.50 at the wellhead for their gas 
um, in the Amadeus Basin. So that reflects the transport costs of getting that gas into the East Coast uh, market from there. Yeah. And they have, a, they have an interesting, potentially large deposit. Of, I think it's called Ducas or Ducas. Ducas, yes. Yeah. Um, which is yet to be proven up. It, um, uh, they stopped drilling with the rig they had because the pressures were, were overwhelming the, the power of the, of the equipment. So they'll have to bring in a bigger, bigger machine at, at some point, bigger rig at some point. But that, that looks also quite interesting. That could come to the market before anything out of the Beetaloo. Yeah, uh, I think Santos is the partner who earning 80% there. They've said it's multi-trillion cubic feet. So it could yeah. be very, very significant. So yep. um, looking around Australia, the companies who are active, we've you, you touched on Perth Basin with Strike, Warrigo and Beach. Uh, now today's reports on West Eregala, something like 1.3 trillion cubic feet of gas plus what's in the Wadjana, which probably lifts it towards 1.5, 1.6 trillion yep. cubic feet. Add to that 800-odd billion cubic feet for weights here, and you're over 2 trillion cubic feet of gas. Uh, and now they're all looking to say, well, maybe there's even more. So the whole Perth Basin onshore may well be as big as the Cooper Basin, which is, I think, 5 trillion cubic feet in total. I guess they'd be disappointed they found all this gas on the Western Australian coast rather than the Eastern coast. Um, again, like the Beetaloo Basin, if that's proved up, um, what do you do with the gas? Uh, you reverse the flow of gas from Caratha down to, to Perth. Uh, do you put in new facilities in Geraldton, for example, and, and go the LNG route? Um, it's yes, hard to say, I but I'm sure I'm I'm sure Western Australians will find a way of selling it. Sure, I mean the price is four dollars fifty in uh, on the coast here, and I think they'd probably be quite attractive for industries globally. I mean that's sort of three dollars US a gigajoule uh, to yep. to bring in energy consuming technologies. Even I mean we're selling our alumina currently to places where the to the Middle East uh, we could have a aluminium smelters here, which you know, aluminium is effectively congealed electricity. Uh, if it's that cheap, um, certainly processing magnetite ore into concentrates uh, could be done. And I noticed the Sino Steel paid the total, some the grand total of six Australian dollars to buy the all of the uh, intellectual property around the Okaji Port and Rail project, which is just north of Geraldton. Right. And of course, um, they're aware that there's a lot of gas and it could well be as you're saying that there's a new uh, liquefied natural gas processing facility put in the Perth Basin to export some of that gas. You would think that the onshore gas, conventional gas that, that it is and the quantities that they they have discovered or say they've discovered and the potential discoveries uh, given that Beach has recently announced a new discovery at Bahara Springs mm. deep um, the, the gas that went into a plant at Geraldton would be much cheaper than the gas that came into Pluto and Caratha uh, from it offshore. Would be, it'd be a shame to export it because it's a finite, non-renewable mm. resource. And in 50 years, our great-grandchildren will be saying, what did you do with all that gas? You, you sold it to someone? Yes. <laughs> you burnt it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's a valuable yes. resource and perhaps we should look at eking it out for a longer period. So, uh, John, are there any 
prospects that people are drilling around Australia or some other Australian companies that you see that have you know caused you to lift an eyebrow and say look that looks interesting uh, in Australia, I, I I really do hope that Eric Streitberg gets Ungani 7 and 6 into production at levels greater than he first yeah. thought possible. Um, I, I think he deserves that much for the work that he's put in up there. Yeah, he's been pioneering. And I think the word is that Ungani 7 has done very well. They've put two horizontals in. And, and drilling a third. Yeah, drilling a third. That's That's unexpected. I think... And Ghani six yep. is more the horizontal is a bit more problematic because they have to get through thirty meters of shale before they can do their horizontal. Mm. Yeah, but uh, certainly if they can get two or three thousand barrels of oil a day, a million barrels a year, that would really be a massive cash flow. And of course, the costs on that project are largely fixed. So if yes. you triple your production, your your costs go down accordingly. And uh, what about Ironbark? The Q Energy uh, is involved with that, with uh, with uh, Beach and um, and New Zealand Oil and Gas. Yeah, I haven't recently run my run the ruler over Ironbark or the other one, Beehive. I think it yes. is that um, um, Melbourne have. No, I haven't because um, it's so far out. I've I've not. Um... I think Ironbark's going to be drilled next year. Uh, Beach uh, BP is it, and uh, it's they're saying it's fifteen trillion cubic feet of gas, and it's effectively oh, a stone's throw from the northwest shelf gas fields. Yeah. So you know what, where the northwest shelf gas fields were looking to go into decline in twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three, and therefore looking for additional gas from the browse fields. If this is a discovery, then would be a bit of an embarrassment of riches for them. It, it it would indeed. Is that why Peter Coleman's trying to get his partners to quickly sign an agreement that Browse and Scarborough be developed? <laughs> it, it may well be. And I see uh, uh, that BHP is now firmly saying that gas from Scarborough will go into Pluto and then the, the expanded Pluto brownfields expansion there. So brownfields LNG is going to be a lot cheaper than yeah. greenfields. Otherwise, on the East Coast, I think Senex Energy has, has got a lot going for it. Um, having brought those leases or tenements that it was granted 18 months ago into production in that short time from coal seam gas verticals uh, is, is, is a pretty good effort, I think, um, when you've got other companies that are still in the pilot stage in the Galilee Basin, for example. Um, Senex is, is leaving some of its peers for dead. Um, and the other thing that I really like is um, what Kevin Gallagher is doing at Santos. I, I think that's been really quite yeah, remarkable. Yeah, he pulled an iron out of the fire there. Uh, He's done a, a good job. Oh, uh, did he ever, yes. Um, the other one, the other thing, just to sort of backtrack a little bit, is when we're talking about USA and the, and the United States oil and gas business, and this is in the conventional area, a couple of Australian companies over there, Otto Energy and uh, Byron Energy, recently raised uh, yeah. new debt to support their activities. You might have seen that, uh, John. And Otto's, Otto's raised money. They're paying 8% uh, above LIBOR. In a, in a market where interest rates are zero and uh, Byron is paying 15% interest 
I mean, uh, this tells you a little bit about the risk profile that people are seeing. Yes, I think Otto has, has probably taken on more risk because more of that money is going to go into exploration drilling, whereas Byron's money is to go into uh, a platform development to produce oil from their recent SM58 discovery. So that's, uh, that's a little bit less But risky. 15%, 15% um, interest they're paying. It's, it's, like it's huge. Eye-watering. Yeah. Be easy to get, yeah. Easy to get money if you're going, willing to pay fifteen percent, yeah. I suppose. Mm-hmm. They're a good mob, those Byron people. They they came out of Petsec Energy, um, uh, which was very successful in the GOM in years past. Not so successful now, but they have a lot of knowledge of what they're doing and good technology. Yeah, there's no doubt that they have been um, very uh, successful. Uh, but you know, when you look at them, a lot of times they're drilling quite expensive wells, looking for about three million barrels mm. of oil, or you know, sort of fifteen billion cubic feet of yeah. gas. Which you think, you know, when you look at the risks and rewards in a market where the gas price is two dollars sixty a yeah, gigaton right. and the oil price is fifty five yeah. or some fifty six US. Yes, they need more oil and gas in those wells. But um, Otto recently, and unfortunately for them announced that their latest well, Mustang, whatever it was, Thunder Gulch 1 um, was a duster, but they must have spent US 7 to $8 million for their share of that well. Uh, it's expensive. So, John, look, that's been great to talk with you, a great fun to go over some of the hits and misses that we've seen over the last 12 or 18 months and what we expect for a couple of these uh, high-profile exploration plays. And I would love to do this again early in the new year, perhaps, and we can review where we thought we were and where we think we might be going. So thanks very much, John, and, uh, and we'll, we'll bid uh, farewell to our uh, listeners on this uh, Wildcatter podcast from Stockholm.